a little funny that I'm preaching a sermon called In His Hands this week, um, given that in the middle of this week I had to put the sermon into practice early when, as many of you know, I uh, had a brief hospital visit. Um, But in all seriousness, I really did feel like I was in God's hands during that time, and I know that much of that is thanks to the prayers of the church family here, feeling much better. Uh, But thank you for your prayers that you lifted up on my behalf to our Creator. Let's go before our Creator together right now. Lord, you're big and you love us, and that makes us glad. Now let the words that I say and let the thoughts we all think be pleasing in your sight, for Jesus' sake. Amen. We have doctors on the mind. A recent survey, Pew Research study said, uh, showed that Half of Americans, 49%, say that they trust their doctor's recommendations all or most of the time. I don't know, those of you who are doctors, how that hits you, if that's higher than you expected to hear or lower than you expected to hear. Um, but, but imagine I said this after my ER visit this week. Imagine I told you, <clears throat> I was given a prescription when I left. They told me to take this twice a day for the next three days. And you know what, I really trust that doctor. Uh, so now I'm in his hands. And then you said to me, well, are you taking the medication? And I said, well, no, no. Um, what would you say to me next? You'd be right to say to me, you're not really in his hands then. You haven't really put yourself in his or her hands. You uh, are actually taking things into your own hands because we can say that we trust the doctor all that we want, but unless we are following the prescriptions, we don't really trust them, right? In other words, if we're taking a shortcut around doctor's orders, it's a deeper issue than just following doctor's orders. It's actually a trust issue that's at hand. What about God's prescriptions for our life, and particularly when we are suffering? What about God's prescriptions? What Peter says in our text today that when we find ourselves suffering, <clears throat> whether or not we follow God's prescription is a trust issue. Would you turn with me to 1 Peter chapter 4? We're nearing the end of this letter. Just two more weeks left after this one. We've been working through it all fall. We'll be looking at verses 12 through 19 today. Peter has already been talking about suffering in this letter throughout, actually. We might even say that it's the main theme of the letter. He's writing to Christians in the first century Roman Empire. He calls them exiles, both because this world is not their home and because they're feeling that pretty acutely now for the first time as they're beginning to be put to the margins in the societies in which they live. So far, what we've seen in the letter is that Peter's counsel to Christians who are beginning to suffer is to look both backwards and forwards. Look backwards to Christ's example of suffering who, though reviled, did not revile in return, but also forward to the day that's coming when we will no longer suffer, to the day that's coming when we will be vindicated at that final judgment. Peter has said, look both backward and forward. Now, in today's text, he talks about how our conduct in exile, in a moment of exile, is less of an issue of following doctor's orders and more of an issue of whether or not we trust the doctor. So we're going to look at that in verses 12 through 19 of 1 Peter chapter 4. Let me just 
show you first how this passage works. If you kind of scan through it there, verses 12 through 19, and you see that last verse there, verse 19, is kind of a summary statement for this whole section. It says, Therefore, let those who suffer according to God's will entrust their souls to a faithful creator while doing good. That summary statement encapsulates eight instructions that precede it. Um, we could say that the eight instructions are like the doctor's orders, and, and this summary statement is the bigger issue, the deeper issue, which is, uh, is our heart entrusted to the doctor himself? Um, so we're going to walk through the eight, but we're keeping this in mind that it's really about a heart that's entrusted to our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. So let's just start walking through them each briefly. First, don't be surprised by suffering. That's verse 12. Don't be surprised by suffering. If you've been an insider in some setting before and then found yourself later as an outsider looking in, you know that that can be uh, an, a strange feeling. It can feel abnormal. But what Peter says here is that suffering and social exclusion, those are actually the most normal thing that there could ever be for a Christian. Take a look at it there in verse 12. Beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes upon you to test you as though something strange were happening to you. Notice a couple things there in verse 12. This is not, first of all, this is not Peter saying, what's wrong with you all? This should be easy to go through this suffering. He's not saying that. He knows it's hard. He starts out with beloved because there's a, he wants to start this with a note of tenderness toward the people he's writing to. And, and far from thinking it's easy to go through the suffering they're going through, he calls it a fiery trial. You see that there in verse 12? That's a word, that word translated fiery trial is used elsewhere to talk about the, the refining of metals, which is another indicator in this text that Peter sees all the suffering that we go through as having a point. None of it is pointless or unproductive. So he doesn't suggest suffering is easy, but he does suggest in verse 12 that we ought to expect it. See how he says this? It's not something strange. It's actually the default experience of Christians. and has been over the centuries. Now, you might say, well, it may have been the default experience of Christians over the centuries in all times and places, but when we start to experience it here in America, it is something strange. It's strange when it's happening here. And uh, in response to that, we might say, though, we might note, um, well, we might just say, tell that to our African-American brothers and sisters, that, that Christians in America have never experienced before what it's like to be on the outside looking in, right? We may have more examples than we realize we have of, from the past, even here in the past here in America, of Christians who have faithfully attempted to navigate an exile experience in which they found themselves on the margins. That's why at a few points during this series we've highlighted certain Negro spirituals along along the way. Looking at verse 12 this week, reflecting on the fact that my own experience in evangelical Christianity, maybe it's similar to yours, maybe it's not, but my own experience over three decades in five different states um, is almost exactly what verse 12 is meant to correct, actually. Namely, that in some ways a defining feature of the Christianity that I've always been around is that we Christians are surprised when trial comes as though something strange is happening to us. Right? To the extent that that's true at North Sub, may it no longer be so. 
as trial comes, when trial comes, may we be a people. Our time has come, Lord. We trust you in it. You've called us to walk through suffering. What do you want for us in that suffering? But when suffering comes, we're not just called to the absence of surprise. We're called to more. We're called to rejoicing. Rejoicing as we share in Christ's sufferings. That's our second instruction here. Do you see it in verse 13? Insofar as you share in Christ's sufferings. Rejoice insofar as you share in Christ's sufferings. This illustration is going to take me a moment to unfold, but I think it'll be worth it. Um, There's something in football called a sudden change. Okay? A sudden change. So, uh, picture we're all on the same team here. Let's, let's, let's say that we're the Bears, right? And sudden change means that our offense has just turned the ball over to the other team. Okay? So now, their offense leaves the field. Our defense is coming on the field. That's a sudden change moment. In um, our default human reaction, When we're on defense, we just sat down to get a rest, and now we're being called back into action. The default human response is to go back on the field sulking, grab my helmet, go back out there. Offense didn't do their job. I got to go back out there again. However, I was on a team once in which they decided, the defense decided that their mentality was going to be that they live for the sudden change. So every time our offense turned the ball over, which happens sometimes, the defense would grab their helmets and go running off the sideline and huddle up together on the field and say, we get another chance to do our jobs again. That's a different kind of sudden change mentality. And can you picture how intimidating that would be for another team? Another team who thinks that they have you down, down and out, and they're about to capitalize on the moment, and on that momentum that they have, And yet you're excited to go back out on the field, even though something adverse has just happened to you. I'd love for that to be a picture that's just kind of seared on my own mind, emblazoned on my own mind when when I read in Scripture about these calls to rejoice in the midst of suffering, as we're called to do so often. And notice there in verse 13, where it says, Rejoice insofar as you share in Christ's sufferings. Our sufferings are referred to as sharing in Christ's sufferings. Not that Not that our own suffering uh, saves anybody. But I think what it's talking about is that by virtue of our union with our Lord Jesus, there's a true sense in which our own suffering is so intimately connected to his that it can be truly said that we are suffering with him and in him in the midst of it. We're sharing in his sufferings in the moment. Note also in verse 13 the word insofar. That's, That's a word indicating degree. And it's an invitation for us to consider that as our suffering increases, that our rejoicing might proportionately increase, actually, along the way. The more we share in Christ's sufferings, the more we would rejoice. But of course, when we suffer, particularly when we're attacked for our faith in some way, that's not our first reaction often. Our first response is often not to ramp up our rejoicing. We more often jump to petitions, boycotts, type out an email, right? Not rejoicing. Now, hear me out. There may be a time and place for those sorts of responses as well, but we need to remember that first and foremost, in every situation in which we're experiencing suffering, we are absolutely called to rejoice. It's a sudden change mindset. It's a different kind of sudden change mindset. And so maybe the takeaway for us on the second point is that next time we face some sort of trial, 
as Christians here on the North Shore, if we jump to fight back before we jump to rejoice, we've missed what God has called us to. But this call to rejoice isn't given to us in a vacuum. It's actually grounded in a particular purpose, or we might say in a particular hoped-for result. And that's what we see in the second half of verse 13. If we rejoice, what will be our reward? Well, it's in the future, according to verse 13. This is our third point. It says, Rejoice insofar as you share in Christ's sufferings, that you may also rejoice and be glad when his glory is revealed. There's a funny aspect here in this passage. It's easy to miss. Did you notice that the goal of our rejoicing is to experience more rejoicing? Follow that argument there in uh, verse 13 with me. But rejoice that you may also rejoice. Um, uh, The first one is active. The second one's passive, actually. And so it's, it's something like we're, we're being glad now in order to be made glad later on. In other words, we're, we're, we're choosing joy now in order to get joy later on. And when is later on? It's when Christ's glory is revealed, according to verse 13. That's referring to a time when our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, will come again. And when he comes again, it will be an uncomfortable moment for many people. But Peter has a hope for his own readers that it won't be uncomfortable for them, that, that they would be among those who are made glad in that moment. And he's saying that those who will be made glad at that moment when Jesus cracks the sky will be those who rejoiced during their time of sufferings here on earth. This verse here, 14, is another example of Peter calling us to act now with the end in mind. Um, And it's not just a stoic grin and bear it type of mentality. It's a rejoicing now because of a hope that's held out, because of a reward that's held out for us in the future. And the reward, in this case, is that we'd be made even more glad at the time of Christ's return. Are you seeing how practical this passage is for us? It's quite practical, but actually throughout, it's riddled with deep theology, and no exception here in what's coming next. There's, we're going to get a theological statement here regarding our identity, and that's our fourth point here. Consider ourselves blessed when insulted. Consider ourselves blessed when insulted. Here's what it says. If you are insulted for the name of Christ, you are blessed, because the spirit of glory and of God rests upon you. It seems as though Peter's got it flipped here in a way, right? According to appearances, based on appearances, the person who's been insulted is a person who's cursed, right? It is a person who um, should be ashamed or sulking or embarrassed. But Peter says, no, no, actually that person is not the one who's cursed. The per- that person is actually blessed. Blessed in what way? Blessed because the spirit of glory and of God rests on them. And then we ask, well, who else has the spirit of glory and of God rested on in Scripture? And in Isaiah chapter 11, verses 1 and 2, that's our Lord Jesus Christ himself. That spirit was resting on him in Isaiah 11. That very name, Christ, that we are associated with and that we are insulted for our association with here in these verses. So the, the reasoning Peter's following is that that spirit that rested on Christ will also rest on you when you are insulted for association with that name of Christ. Have you ever had that experience of the, of the Spirit resting on you? It's a, sort of, it's a sort of experience in which 
<clears throat> we get an unusual fullness of his power, an unusual fullness of his presence in our lives in such a way that we try to explain it afterwards and it's really unexplainable. Have you ever had that experience? What Peter's telling us here is that we, can, we are told to expect that sort of experience if we are insulted for the, our association with the name of Christ. And by the way, did you notice that he's not saying, well, this will happen if you're beaten for the name of Christ, right? He says insulted. He, uh, Peter's not in the camp that says, you're not experiencing any real suffering if all you've ever faced is verbal attacks. Uh, talk about what's going on in the Middle East. That's real suffering. Um, Throughout this letter, the sort of suffering that Peter has envisioned that he's been talking about is mockery, insults. That's what his readers are just beginning to face at this time. And so it's an encouragement to us who maybe are in that same boat. But every time, almost every time that Peter brings up suffering in this letter, he somehow comes back to the sort of suffering. He clarifies and re-clarifies the sort of suffering that he's not talking about. He's not talking about suffering for wrongdoing. Look at that in verse 15. This is our fifth point, verse 15. But let none of you suffer as a murderer or a thief or an evildoer or as a meddler. We've all seen a celebrity maybe on the news uh, whining about jail time or loss of a job because of decisions that they made themselves, right? And what Peter's saying is may that not be us as Christians, In other words, it's not inherently honoring to God to suffer. There's nothing admirable about suffering for wrongdoing. That's a pretty straightforward point. But what I was asking myself this week while I was preparing is, why does Peter keep re-emphasizing this point? Because he's already talked about this theme, hasn't he? Back in verse 20 of chapter 2, right around that section. And then verse 17 of chapter 3, he talked about it. Why does he bring up for a third time in this letter... uh, not suffering for wrongdoing. Are his readers really that tempted to go out and murder people and steal and smuggle and do whatever else that he needs to say it three times in this five-chapter letter? Here are a couple conclusions that I reached in this. First, even if the Christians that Peter is writing to aren't regularly doing this sort of evil and suffering as a result... Maybe if they're not even regularly tempted to dive into that sort of heinous evil that we would suffer for. Um, It's really devastating when any Christian does slip into that sort of evil and gets publicly disciplined for it, right? Even just this week, there was a story of a Christian celebrity that many of us have appreciated who was exposed for using his Christian influence and platform to uh, exploit women for sex. Right? When those stories happen, people walk away from God as a result. And so maybe part of what's going on in this re-emphasis is that Peter says, you know, this is such a big deal when this happens that it's worth re-emphasizing time and time again. Christians, do not go down this road. But I wonder if there's another layer too. I wonder if during times of pressure, some of these examples of evil doing become even more tempting, even for, believing, uh, even for solid believers, even for Christians. Um, here's what I mean. Picture a few of these scenarios. Picture a day in which um, you're a small business owner, 
your business is starting to get really squeezed, pressured, uh, attacked because of your Christian faith and it's such that you're not really making ends meet at the end of the year, are you not tempted to fudge the numbers a little bit? It's a small business anyway. Nobody's going to notice. Fudge the numbers at the year's end just a touch to make ends meet. Or uh, you lose your job because of your Christian faith. Christians experience that all over the world, and you lose it mid-year, so you've been looking for a job, your family's just struggling to put food on the table, and then at year's end when that, it's time to do your taxes, are you not just a little bit tempted to fudge some things here and there to get a little bit bigger tax return to give your family a few more meals? <clears throat> or what happens if you have a family member who's been murdered for being a Christian, and you're living in a place in which you have no confidence that the authorities are going to bring justice to the perpetrator of the murder. Are you not tempted, at least for a moment, to take matters into your own hands and commit murder yourself? I wonder if maybe part of why Peter keeps bringing this up to people who are under pressure is that maybe pressure increases the temptation to certain kinds of evil. In any event, the takeaway here for us, maybe on this fifth point, is that before pressure increases for us as Christians, let's pledge to one another that we're not going down these roads. Let's pledge to one another that we'll live individually and corporately as a church so above reproach that even if they come looking for something, something that they could get us on, that they won't be able to find it. Let's let all our suffering be distinctly Christian. Let's not be ashamed of what we're going through. That brings us to our sixth Instruction here, don't be ashamed. Pretty straightforward in verse 16. Yet if anyone suffers as a Christian, let him not be ashamed. That's not easy when you used to be the popular one at school, uh, in the popular group, and now your friends are mocking you, saying you're calling you part of the God Squad. Um, They used to invite you to get together every weekend, but now you realize that they're hanging out with each other without ever inviting you. Every once in a while, they accidentally include you on a text message that wasn't meant for you, in which they are mocking you. Yet, if anyone suffers as a Christian, let him not be ashamed. But what? Verse 16. Glorify God in that name. In other words, and this is our seventh point, glorify God for the privilege of bearing the name Christian. Glorify God for the privilege of bearing the name Christian. Christian, there are a lot of labels that we can be associated with, a lot of labels even that we can suffer for. Uh, In verse 15, we saw a few, murderer, thief, evildoer, meddler. We can probably think of a few others, but there's one label in particular that we're meant to wear as a badge of honor. There's one label that if we suffer for it, the suffering will pale in comparison to the privilege of getting to wear that label in the first place, and it's the label of Christian. This is very related to verse 14 when we talked about being insulted for the name of Christ. That name of Christ and now this name Christian that we get to carry around. Is that, is that name sweet to you? I spoke with someone just this week who has been asked in a certain setting not to say the name Jesus. Don't speak the name Jesus in this setting, please. You know what that does to you and, and to your love for the name Jesus when you're asked at least in a certain setting in your life? Not to utter that name. 
it becomes once again like it maybe once was at some earlier stage in your faith, uh, your most treasured possession, a name that you cling to and love. And that name Christian as a derivative was a name that was originally made up to mock us, followers of Jesus. You know that in the first century of the church? Oh, those are the Christ people. Let's call them Christians uh, derisively. But the first generation of Christians embraced that term as a privilege and said, wait, they're calling us Christians? They're, they're putting the name of Christ on us? We get to carry the name Jesus around? Let's own that. Let's make that our name. Christian, let's wear that as a badge of honor. We can only handle suffering that way, though, if we've got a broader perspective on the whole thing. And that's what Peter's been trying to do throughout this letter, is to give us that broader perspective. And he returns to that again in our final instruction here, number 8, in verses 17 and 18. Compare temporary sufferings to eternal sufferings. Compare temporary sufferings to eternal sufferings. This isn't the easiest part of the letter to understand, so I'm going to read it slowly. And I want you to look there for the implied contrast between temporary and eternal sufferings. It says, For it is time for judgment to begin at the household of God. And if it begins with us, what will be the outcome for those who do not obey the gospel of God? And if the righteous is scarcely saved, what will become of the ungodly and the sinner. It's fascinating to me that Peter can take our suffering and lump it under the heading here of God's judgment. Did you see that he does that? In verse 17? It was shocking to me when I realized that he did that. For it is time for judgment to begin at the household of God. Even, in other words, the insults even that we experience for being Christians fall under the heading in some way of God's judgment. They are in some sense God's judgment on us. Now, a word about Christians in judgment. Romans 8.1, right? We cling to it. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. The judgment that you and I face, you and I who belong to Christ, the judgment that we face will never be that final judgment of condemnation. Praise God for that. However, Just because we will escape the final condemning judgment doesn't mean that we will escape God's earthly disciplinary judgment. God may still discipline us in the way that any loving parent disciplines their children. It hurts, but in the midst of the pain, it refines us, it purifies us. It's not retributive discipline, it's actually um, productive discipline. And Peter's saying here in verse 17 that it's time for that judgment to begin. In other words, in God's mind, he's decided that this is just the right time for it to start. And of course, those of us who are living now on this side of when Peter wrote this letter should expect that the same will be true for us. And one implication of our living in that time in which God is bringing his judgment beginning with the household of God is that he might just use our mocking cousin to purify us, right? So what a shame it would be to hear mockery from that cousin and then loosen up our fingers to get on social media and go on a rant against people like our cousin who insult Christians and in, the, in, the, in doing so miss the opportunity that God had in it for us to be purified ourselves. The reality is that God may be allowing us to be insulted in order to purify us through pain. But, 
in comparison to the suffering that will be experienced for those who indefinitely persist in remaining outside the household of God, the suffering that we're experiencing is nothing. Do you see that reasoning there at the end of verse 7? If it begins with us, what will be the outcome for those who do not obey the gospel of God? And then he quotes a proverb to support it. If the righteous is scarcely saved, what will become of the ungodly and the sinner? If the righteous is scarcely saved, what's that talking about? I think it's suggesting, as Jesus does in Matthew 24, that there's a day coming that it will be so hard to be a Christian, to remain a Christian, actually, in some times and places before the end, that even the most faithful Christian will be tempted right to the edge of walking away from the faith. And Peter says, if it's that much of a battle just to stay saved for someone who has already been purchased by Jesus, already has the Holy Spirit living inside of them, somebody who's already seen God at work in their life, Think about the outcome for those who have rejected and continue to persist in rejecting the love of God. That's a sobering note on which Peter wraps up this passage. But there's actually hope in it, I think, because of the perspective it offers. Here's what I mean. The perspective it offers is that no matter what God calls us to suffer through, it's nothing compared to the suffering that we're being saved from. Right? Or said another way, the, the suffering that we escape in Christ will always be much, much infinitely more intense than the suffering that we endure in Christ. That brings us back to our summary statement in verse 19, where we began, uh, but where this passage actually concludes. Therefore, let those who suffer according to God's will entrust their souls to a faithful creator while doing good. Maybe we understand some layers to that now that we didn't understand at the beginning. Let me just offer two notes there on this summary statement in verse 19. First, we Christians are in a habit of blaming the world around us for defying God's will by causing us Christians to suffer sometimes. Peter's saying it actually is God's will that we suffer. Those who suffer according to God's will. So it's a call to be careful, I think, that as we're shaking our fists at the world, we don't end up inadvertently shaking our fists at God. Second observation is just that word creator. As we talked about earlier in today's service, I don't think it's accidental there. I think it's a reminder that if we were in doubt that our God has the ability to hold us in his hands including all of our suffering that he allows us to go through. This is a reminder that he spoke it all into being. He's been holding it together. He's been God a long time, and as such, is utterly worthy of our trust. So I might just summarize this with this big idea. As we prepare to suffer, let's entrust ourselves to our creator. As we prepare to suffer, let's entrust ourselves to our creator. First Peter, in large part, is a letter preparing people for suffering. Now, <clears throat> who knows when suffering's coming in an intense form for us here in America. I, I, I don't want to give the impression through this sermon or any of the sermons in this series that I'm predicting that it's going to be really awful to be a Christian in America 
next year or anytime soon. Uh, right now, we're relatively insulated, honestly, from a lot of what our brothers and sisters around the world are experiencing. And our suffering may ramp up in coming years. It, it may not. We may be going through this exercise, actually, through First Peter and talking about suffering and living in exile largely for the sake of the next generation as we pass it on to our children and our spiritual children, uh, those who are going to come after us who will actually be the ones to really experience the sort of suffering that Peter's readers and then later Christians in the Roman Empire experience. I don't know. But every generation of Christians is called to prepare for it. Every generation of Christians is called to be resolved in advance that if God calls us to suffer, we will entrust ourselves to him in the midst of our suffering. And how we respond to suffering is a trust issue, as we saw in this text, as verse 19 reminded us. If, if, if I won't follow the doctor's orders, that means I don't trust the doctor, no matter whether I say I do or I don't. Have you trusted in Jesus? Are you following his prescription for life and for walking through suffering? Our Lord Jesus began to prove himself worthy of our trust, when the Father made all things through him, according to Colossians 1. That means that, that when, this, when the stars were being hung in their constellations, God was doing that through Jesus. When um, birds began teaching their young uh, how to eat, and God was teaching mother birds to do that, according to the scriptures. God was doing that through Jesus. When, when God tilted the earth just on the right axis to sustain life. He was doing that through Jesus. And in all those ways, Jesus was showing himself worthy of our trust. But the ultimate time, the ultimate place where he showed himself worthy of our trust was at the cross, of course. When he completed the last step down the ladder from heaven's glory to the humiliation of a human existence to the ultimate humiliation of death on a Roman cross in your place and in mine. As he hung there naked on that cross, he was taking your sin and mine on himself and suffering the wrath that we deserved in our place so that we wouldn't have to experience it, so that we could stand before God one day washed clean, free from sin, and able to stand in God's presence and hear him say, well done, good and faithful servant, and hear him welcome us into his forever family. Jesus was taking that on himself on the cross in order to purchase that for us. So friends, we are not called to entrust ourselves to some vague idea of a wise old grandfather in the sky. We're called to entrust ourselves to the God who made us, and who, in the person of Jesus Christ, spilled his blood for us in relentless pursuit of our good and of his glory. Let's pray. God, thank you for chasing us down to the ends of the earth and stopping at nothing to draw us to yourself, to win us back, to purchase our freedom from sin, to make us clean and to adopt us into your forever family. Thank you that as our creator, you've been showing yourself faithful for a long, long time. And as we come here this morning with anxieties and fears, help us to give those over to you. As we suffer, 
Help us to give our trepidation over to you. Help us to be the sort of people who entrust ourselves to you. Put ourselves in your hands, truly, following your prescriptions because we know that they are for our good, and we deeply, deeply believe that. In Jesus' name, amen.